Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. You've tuned in to Columbia Calling, your first stop for everything you want to know about Columbia and where to invest, where to visit. From the Pacific to the Caribbean, the Andes Mountains to the Amazon jungle, Colombia has a slice of everything. Shooting from the hip, answering the questions that need answering. Here's your host, the journalist and hotelier Richard McCall, shedding some light on the fashionable South American destination of Colombia. Hey, it's that time of the week again, folks. This is me, your host, Richard McCall, here in Bogota, Colombia, 2,600 meters closer to the stars. And this is episode 406 of the Columbia Calling podcast. That's right, episode 406. We'll be talking to Professor Kenneth Kosick from the University of California, Santa Barbara. He's professor of neurosciences there, and we'll be talking about early onset dementia or Alzheimer's disease in Antioquia. And of course, many questions that arise around that. And there may be no better person in this field with whom to talk. I'm honestly overwhelmed and actually very humbled to be able to chat to Professor Kozik uh, here in person in Bogota about this uh, this disease, this mutation, genetic mutations taking place in Colombia. And we'll find out more about it. Of course, you'll remember that we did do an episode on this with Jenny Aaron Smith, the writer, the science writer, a couple of years ago as well. So check back on that because she has a book coming out either later next year or in 2023 about this very, uh, this very issue, this very subject. She spent years immersed investigating this. So there we go. We've got two leads for you, Professor Kozik and Jennifer Erin Smith. So therefore, this is the last episode of the year, episode 406. I've been counting back. We did 50 episodes this year. That's 50 episodes with different people, a couple of repeated people, and of course, 50 newscasts as well from Emily Hart, our uh, well, ever egregious and, of course, amazing newscast uh, reporter giving us really the you know the real news coming out of Colombia and also some some unknown news unknown stories he, she really looks for it and spends time so of course a huge thank you to her for her work you could of course support her further by signing up on patreon.com forward slash Columbia calling or Kofi, that's ko-fi.com Columbia calling and you can make donations one-off donations or subscribe our prices are going to increase to five dollars a month that's on patreon and on kofi.com which I think you'll find is very very reasonable five dollars a month for the newscast and of course the podcast supporting the podcast uh, you know a dollar 25 a week isn't going to set you back too much for all the hard work that's done 
Finally, of course, thank you so much to everyone who has been supporting the podcast all of these years. That's all right. We started in 2013 and we're now going, we're looking over our shoulders, looking ahead at 2022 and kind of incredible. There are a hundred of you on Patreon. There are four of you on Ko-fi, I believe. Uh, well, we're just growing and I've got huge people lined up and lining up for next year. And of course, we'll be back early in the year. And I think it's going to be myself and Emily chatting about what the year brings. Uh, we'll have literary people, of course. We'll have politics because, of course, next year is an electoral year. So exciting times in Colombia. And of course, finally, stay safe, everyone. I know we're reading about Omicron and the spread, uh, of course. And we're all traveling because we all need to see family and we all wish to be together at this time of year. So please, everyone, be careful. Stay safe. And now it's over to Emily Hart for the newscast. And then we'll be talking with Professor Kozik uh, about this early onset dementia, the genetic mutation that creates early Alzheimer's disease in Colombia. So thank you again, everyone. That's me saying happy holidays to all of you. Merry Christmas to those who celebrate. And indeed, here's to the best, all the best for 2022. Bye-bye. I'm Emily Hart, and these are your top stories from Colombia for the week of December 12th, 2021. Forced displacement in Colombia increased by 198% this year, with nearly 61,000 people displaced. Of the victims, only 18% have been able to return to their homes, and those who attempt to return do so without security guarantees, according to the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. 75% of the mass displacement emergencies have been concentrated in the Pacific region alone. Two commanders of the Segunda Marquetalia armed group were killed this week, both in unclear circumstances in the Venezuelan state of Apure, near the Colombian border. Henry Castellanos, known as Romagna, and Hernán Darío Velázquez, known as El Paisa, were high-ranking commanders in the dissident group, led by the FARC's former political chief, Luciano Marín Arango, known as Iván Márquez. Both Romagna and El Paisa were initially part of the peace agreement and collaborated for nearly two years, reintegrating former combatants into civilian life, but they later left, alleging physical and legal insecurity. The two reappeared in a 2019 video with alias Jesus Santrich and Ivan Marquez, as well as 20 men armed with rifles, to announce a new stage in the armed struggle, the emergence of the dissident FARC group known as the Segunda Marquetalia. Jesus Santrich died in May in similarly murky circumstances. Romagna had gained fame with the FARC for his mass kidnappings in the 1990s, while El Paisa reportedly started his career as a Medellin cartel hitman, joining the FARC in the early 90s. El Paisa was wanted for crimes against humanity, including the 2003 car bombing of the El Nogal Club in Bogotá, which killed 36 people. This week, Cristina Isabel Cantillo, an LGBTQ plus social leader, was murdered in her home in Santa Marta, reportedly celebrating with her family when two armed men arrived on a motorbike and shot her repeatedly. This year alone, 130 social leaders have been killed across Colombia, according to the Ombudsman's Office. 
The government's slow and inadequate response to the spiralling violence against social leaders has been strongly criticised by campaign group Human Rights Watch this week. 21 military personnel and one civilian have accepted their responsibility for the forced disappearance and subsequent murder of at least 227 people during Colombia's armed conflict, according to Transitional Justice Tribunal, the HEP. The charges of war crimes and crimes against humanity relate to the so-called false positive scandal, the army's policy of murdering civilians and passing off their bodies as combat kills. This is the first time that former members of the security forces have admitted their role in these crimes. Among them is General Paulino Coronado, who is the first high-ranking army commander to admit that he was responsible for murders committed by his subordinates. Two other accused men, both colonels, have denied responsibility, and their cases will now be handled by a special unit. They could face prison terms of up to 20 years. The tribunal, the HEP, says that at least 6,402 people were victims of this type of murder between 2002 and 2008 during the administration of former President Álvaro Uribe, though human rights groups say the total is much higher. President Ivan Duque has announced the government will begin negotiations to increase the minimum wage in 2022 to 1 million pesos per month, around $250. It's an increase of 10%. Meanwhile, Colombia has a new richest man. As David Vélez unseats Luis Carlos Sarmiento as the richest man in Colombia, according to Forbes magazine. Vélez listed his digital bank, New Bank, on the New York Stock Exchange. His wealth now exceeds 10.2 billion US dollars. Sarmiento's worth is estimated at 9.6 billion. Bogota no longer has the worst traffic in the world, but it does have the worst in South America, according to the INRIX metric, which, me- which measures global traffic. Having been at the top several times, this year the city moved to eighth place in the world. According to the indicator, after 2020, traffic in Bogota dropped by 50%. However, people still spend on average 94 hours a year in traffic jams, and the average speed is 11 miles, 17 kilometres, per hour. Women's collectives are trying to bar J Balvin from performing in Cali, after he was confirmed as part of the Cali Fair for later this month. Collectives claim that they do not want the Colombian singer to perform at the concert, known as the Super Mega Concierto, because the lyrics of his songs are misogynistic and racist and perpetuate violence. This discussion comes after the video for his track, Perra, which means bitch, was taken down from YouTube in October after criticism for being sexist and racist, featuring the singer holding two Afro-descendant women on dog's leashes in an alleyway. Coronavirus cases are back at a daily average of under 2,000 new cases in Colombia. 77% of the population have received one dose of vaccine, 51% are now fully vaccinated. Despite concern over the new Omicron variant, Colombia's government has said it will not restrict flights from other countries or close the borders. Unvaccinated non-resident travellers will no longer be allowed to enter Colombia. Those were your top stories for the week. Thanks for listening.
And we're back. This is segment three of episode 406. I've left the house. It's unusual. Uh, I've left the house to meet this week's very special guest, professor of neuroscience at the Euro- University uh California, Santa Barbara. His name is Kenneth Kosick. We we're going to say Ken. He is an expert in Alzheimer's and dementia, and we're going to be talking about this early onset dementia that takes place in Antioquia for the most part. You'll remember from a couple of years ago, or a year and a half ago, we spoke to the writer, the science writer, Jenny Aaron Smith, who's writing a book precisely on this subject. Many of you have remembered this and have actually been in touch to say we want to talk further about this. So some months ago, I had the good honor of, uh, of, of talking to Ken, and here we are. He's in Bogota. So welcome on the Columbia Calling podcast. Well, thank you, really. It's been a pleasure meeting you, Richard. <laughs> well, I, I hope so. I, I hope it's a, a mutual pleasure at the end, and I don't ask too many questions, and I don't infuriate you with my lack of knowledge on such a technical subject. On the other hand, I, you don't want to let me just blast away. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm, you know, you, you have a lifetime of study in this. And so therefore, it's going to be fascinating, because it really is quite an unusual topic. And perhaps I could ask you just to, to wind back to the beginning, you've been coming to Columbia for a very long time. And over the years, and you met a neuroscientist called Francisco Lopera, correct. And this, he was the one who sort of guided you to the idea, well, the fact, then the idea that there could be early onset Alzheimer's in Antioquia. Absolutely right. Yes. Back, uh, this was back in the 1980s um, when Francisco Lopera, a neurologist in Medellin, um, had discovered uh, a very large family that had got dementia uh, when they were in their 40s or 50s. And at that time, uh, he didn't actually know what the disease was. He, you know, it was dementia, but it wasn't necessarily Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's is just one type of dementia. Mm-hmm. It looked like there was a gene involved because it was being passed down from generation to generation, but he didn't know the gene either. Um, and so in some very serendipitous manner, uh, I was invited down here first to Bogota, where I gave a couple talks, and by chance um, ended up meeting uh, Francisco, we call him Pacho, and he um, uh, told me about this family. And um, I was uh, enthralled in just about a nanosecond and uh, (laughs) went off with him to Medellin. We um, developed a collaboration that has now gone on for almost 30 years Mm -hmm. to study this family. Over that period of time, uh, I can tell you some of the things we found, but the leading two things that at least can be the basis for our conversation is is that um, after a couple of years, there was an individual in the family who died, um, and there was um, we requested the brain. Um, there was a neuropathologist in Medellin at the time who removed the brain, even though there was a little bit of reluctance at first on the part of one or two family members, but they finally agreed. Um, This um, neuropathologist named Juan Carlos Arango um, quickly boarded a plane, flew to my home in Boston at the time, and uh, next morning we took the brain. It was at nighttime. He knocked on my door at my home at night with a brain, a bucket, and formalin, said, Ken, I've got the brain. And uh, we went, went into my lab the next morning, cut the brain, stained it, and for the first time, 
proved that this, the cause of this dementia was Alzheimer's. We could see it under the microscope. So he just brought, I have to go back. First, yeah. the, he brought the brain up in like a, a thermos. I mean, like in one of those cool boxes. No, <laughs> Not on ice. <laughs> uh, at that time, this was, um, so you can do two things with the brain. Okay. You can put it on ice or even dry ice uh, to, if you want to freeze it. But you can also fix it in formalin and formaldehyde. Ah, okay. And that's what he did. He put it in formaldehyde because right. that's how you can look at sections under the microscope. Mm. So he showed up not with a cooler, <laughs> but with a bucket and brain and formaldehyde. He would have had a lot more trouble getting through customs nowadays. I, I think so, too. Now, I, I'm fascinated because one of the, well, I'm just rewinding about one of the fears and legends, and I don't know if there's any truth to it, is of course about organ harvesting in South America and Central America, that gringos are always going to come along and steal organs. So this you know, withdrawal of a family member's brain must have drawn all sorts of comparisons. Uh, you know, the family saying, you know, your body snatchers or something. Yeah. Well, it was an interesting moment. Um, one reason why we were able to do it is because um, Francisco Lopera has developed over the years uh, a very a lot of trust yeah. among these families. Yeah. They look to him. They almost worship him. He is a person who has cared for them uh, time and time again. He's gone to their homes. He's mm. had dinner with them. Um, so they trust him, number one. Mm. But you're right. Um, in this particular case, there was uh, one member of the family um, who did not want to do it. Yeah. Um, we... Um, I wasn't there at the time, but uh, there was a lot of conversation with him. Um, he w was discussed with um, this uh, a person who was called the vaccine man. We go around and give vaccines to people considered very simpatico. Yeah. There was the mayor who came and gave a little talk. Um, but and finally, um, he agreed, but he said, you got to do it quickly. You just, you know, because, and I should say that mm. when you remove a brain, you don't disfigure the body. Okay. You can take the, cut it from the back and uh, the funeral and all the arrangements can go on. Uh, without, you know, any disfigurement. Mm. But we did know, I don't know if, you know, you must have been to a Colombian funeral. There's uh, a lot of, um, yes. uh, often professional mourners are brought in to cry and, you know, you, a certain amount of drinking that goes on. And um, we did wonder that if after, you know, a few hours had passed, if there wouldn't be some speculation that um, the brain was being sold to a gringo or something was going on. Um you know, Juan Carlos was out of there. And, um, mm. you know, to this day, they don't regret doing this uh, because it opened up the research agenda for us, for well, everyone. And and so then then what you do is you, you it's up in Boston and you do your dissections and you say you're staining. And I guess there's a, there's a, a pattern that you see in there that is, you know, that displays clearly to, to a neuroscientist, this is Alzheimer's. This is, this pattern, you're absolutely right. This pattern is what, uh, Alois Alzheimer first observed mm. back in what, 1906, 1907. Uh, you put it under the microscope, you put these sections of the brain under the microscope, mm -hmm. and you see two very typical structures. One are called senile plaques, mm -hmm. and the other are called neurofibrillary tangles. If you see both of them, and you see a lot of them, you have a diagnosis. Okay. So let, let's, I mean, this is a, amazing that it took this, it took you almost like smuggling a brain out of Colombia. But let's, let's, let's what is this, uh, you know, early onset Alzheimer's? Why Antioquia? Why Colombia? We have to, I mean, we need the basics here before we can go into, into some of the yeah. more technical points. Well, the reason why early onset, I'll get to why Colombia in a moment, um, but why early onset is because 
there is a gene mutation responsible for this form of Alzheimer's. It's in a gene called presenilin 1, and um, that is, um, when, when there's a certain mutation, that means that one of the, what we call the nucleotides, one of the letters in the DNA has a mistake, mm-hmm. then, um, and you're born with it. But being born with that mistake, you're normal for 45, 50 years, and for reasons we you know, don't completely know. But at that time, Alzheimer's kicks in because this particular gene is responsible for making a form of the amyloid that deposits in the brain. Hmm. So the gene mutation accelerates what uh, the disease, the same disease that people get when they're older, which we call sporadic Alzheimer's, all the mutation does is speed it up so it happens at an earlier age. I mean, I, for example, I could be carrying it, but, but of course it, it's probably, well, it's unlikely until in, I'm in my 60s type thing. But had I had the penicillin 1 mutation, well, around now I'm 45. Around now it would be kicking in and, and so on. That's exactly right. You, oh. If people that, of course, when we talk about this, everybody tends to worry about it. And... Um, Usually, we begin to be suspicious of a person that might carry it if, like you said, they're getting some symptoms of forgetfulness early on. But equally important is there really has to be a family history to make it uh, clear that something serious is happening. Okay. And, and, And so... And also, my wife is an epidemiologist, Alba. Uh, she will listen to this show because this kind of thing really appeals to her. She has posed a couple of questions, and she says, in a regular population, what would be the incidence of dementia, Alzheimer's, as opposed to in a, you know, comparing it to the population of one of these Antiochian towns, such as, uh, I think, Yarumal? What, is, right. what are we looking at? So these mutations are exceedingly rare. Mm-hmm. If you take... Uh, and again, we'll just get to Yaruma in a moment, but uh, if you take all in the whole world, because Colombia is not the only place where there's presenilin <laughs> mutations. Uh-huh. These mutations can happen all over the world. Remember, a gene is made up of thousands of these letters. Mm-hmm. And in different places around the world, there are different mistakes in, pre-senilin, in the presenilin gene that cause early onset. So there's a few people in Japan, a few people in France. They're all over the world. Mm-hmm. There are about maybe 200 different mutations known. And if you add them all up, mm-hmm. it probably accounts for maybe a half a percent of all Alzheimer's disease. Most Alzheimer's disease by far and away is the sporadic form. Mm-hmm. That's what we really have to treat. We have to figure out a cure for that. This is a rare form. but it's a really important form because it's informative with regard to the sporadic disease, mm. since it gives us a genetic biochemical pathway toward understanding the disease. Mm. Now, what's special about the Colombian case? The, the Colombian case is the first thing that's special is that this family with what, with what Dr. Lopera has come to call the PISA mutation um, in presenilin one is the largest family in the world by far that carries uh, a mutation in presenilin. It's their own mutation. We call it a private mutation because every one of these families around the world with a mutation in this gene has a slightly different mutation. So 
the one in Medellin is there. They uniquely have it. Mm-hmm. But that family has grown to, today we can draw a family tree of close to 6,000 people. Uh, doesn't mean they all have it. No. But this tree um, has a lot of people with the disease. If I have to ask then, if you're a parent, one of your parents have it, what is the probability of, of a child getting it? 50%. So it's high. Very I mean, this high. This is very high indeed. Very high. It's 50%. So you're looking at a 6,000-person tree, and it's going to be upwards of 3,000 people probably. It could be that high. It's probably not because there are branches in which, um, say, one parent did not get the disease, mm-hmm. and then their children are now free of the okay. disease. So people, some branches of the family have released themselves from this, this, this mutation. Mm. But uh, you're right, a very high number of people with the mutation. And, and, and how does this mutation, I mean, how, how does it arrive here? Uh, in the piece you sent yeah. me from 99, I think yes. it was, uh, you know, you're saying uh, there was a, thro- there's a comment of maybe, you know, a Spanish sailor who had a, a dalliance here in yeah. these lands or something else. But I mean, how d- do we suspect? Have you done, are there genealogical sort of tracing gone back to see if it's, because the, the idea, of course, is it's the Basque country. That t- tends to be quite a, you know, a, a, a typical idea. No, we're yeah. Basques, we're more pure. And then there's another thing that's, no, we're descended from the Israelites or something. And that was, these were both in your piece. But what, what is the real story here? Yeah. Well, the real story is that um, when we talk to the members of this family and we ask them about your grandparents and parents before them, and then even earlier we go into the, uh, the church records of mm. births and really we can push the family tree back to the 1700s. Okay. But at a genetic level, when you have the actual genomes, Mm -hmm. we can go back even further. Because there are techniques you can do when you have all the DNA sequence that can allow you to actually pinpoint the time at which the gene first came here, originated. And if we do all the math, it comes out to be about around 1500 okay around the time of the conquistadores so it's it's a, a potential so it's even prior to let's say the migrations of of sephardic jews to to south america it's conquistadores we're looking at and you have, oh, it's amazing it's amazing so it could be on you know the boat with pizarro i mean that's it what could, I'm, absolutely <laughs> that's what i'm yeah. trying to think yeah uh, or you know there's there's the conquistador the perhaps you know the the least famous and the most horrible is alonso de ojeda who at the end of his life asked because he realized because of his cruelty to people and in particular the the aboriginal peoples of these places he asked to be buried under the steps of the cathedral, which has now fallen down, in Santo Domingo in the Dominican Republic, so that he would be stepped on each time. Uh, he ended up in the Gulf of Urabá in, in oh. his, first, his first destination, and on one of his boats, Pizarro was there. Uh, but they had fled because the, the, um, you know, the settlement up there in Urabá failed yeah. due to many things. I digress, but it would be amazing if it had yes. come in that tiny failed attempt to settle uh, this area uh, so you've pushed it back to the 1500s but you can't i mean this is now a genetic investigation 
because for me it's the history that I love sure. you know, it's like it was he was a carpenter from Badajoz or something right, yes. <laughs> you know you can't get back to that obviously but so we think it came over in the 1500s and then it, they must have settled in in a region and then but that then suggests to me and and you've you've said so as well that Antioquia is not the only part of Colombia with you know this uh, penicillin one that's exactly right. So, um, well, just one moment before we get to that, which okay. is a really great uh, point, because that's what we're doing today, uh, <laughs> that, you know, what, what you, the question you just asked. Um, but um, I, I've also been fascinated a bit with the history, mm. and um, it's remarkable to me that the first settlement in Antioquia was Santa Fe de Antioquia, only 49 years after Columbus got here. Mm. And you've traveled through that part of the world. I mean... To get into the interior of Antioquia from wherever on the coast they came from, or maybe it was up to Magdalena, we don't actually know, but uh, or at least I don't know. Um, <laughs> the uh, uh, it's pretty incredible the way those settlements arose, mm. and you're right. Someone there was carrying this mutation. Who it was, we don't know. We don't even know if it was necessarily Basco mm. or Sephardic, because all we know is that the markers near the mutation in the DNA are from the Iberian Peninsula. That's the, many of the people um, are coming from other parts of Spain, not just Basque countries, so could be anywhere. See, I, I majored in well, one of my courses in my undergrad, um, uh, way back in another lifetime in the UK, I studied Hispano-Arabic Spain, so oh. that I, I've got an idea of this, this, you know, this crossroads of cultures because it really was. Uh, it, you've got the Moors from Northern Africa and, uh, and coming as far as from Baghdad, which of course was the seat of learning at the time, and of course the Jewish uh, settlers who were were permitted there, not allowed to arrive uh, to get to the top um, you know, positions in in, the, in 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 their society, but they were high-level ranking people. So you've got a mix. And of course, there would have been as well the the, the Visigoths from northern Germany. Yeah. And so, so we're looking at a whole melting pot. The Iberian Peninsula is not how some people seem to imagine it. You know, it's, a, I th it's just fascinating. And as you say, the settlements to get into any, almost anywhere in the interior <laughs> of Colombia. I mean, you're crossing mountain ranges. But then, are, is it? Are we looking at the proliferation of of this mutation because of a, you know, the lack of variety in in uh, families and, and you know, I guess sort of close marriages, cousins marrying one another, and so. Um, a great question. So this is this mutation is not a result of the technical word would be would be consanguinity. Okay, it's not a result of um, of of interbreeding, close marriages, marrying your cousins. That does happen, of course, mm -hmm. and that happens a lot here. Mm -hmm. And um, that is responsible for some genetic problems. Mm -hmm. But the kind of problem that's responsible for is when both the mother and the father have the mutation and you get a type of disease that we call recessive. This is a mm -hmm. dominant disease. You only need one parent to have it. And for a dominant disease, that arises not as a result of consanguinity. Mm. And um, so there's another reason at mm. which we have to think about. And the, of course, the reason why this particular family is so large, of course, has, you know, economic uh, 
bases and you know you know as well as I do uh, the very large families that yeah. happen and if you have 15 children uh, generation after generation <laughs> and half of them are carrying the mutation mm-hmm. you're going to get a pretty big group mm. um, but uh, let's move to your yeah. next question which was about well there are other presenilin-1 mutations mm-hmm. here in Colombia so just to give the backstory um one of the reasons that this family captivated the interest of mm. the international community is because it created an opportunity to do a clinical trial for Alzheimer's disease, a drug trial. Why? Because at that time when the drug, when people were thinking about treatments for Alzheimer's disease, um, they were, they were, they tried a number of drugs and they were all tried in patients who already had full-blown Alzheimer's and they didn't work and it was pretty obvious they wouldn't work because their brain cells had already died. Yeah. So we had been working in obscurity for you know a decade or two when these drug trials began to fail. And one day, a colleague of mine called me up and said, hey, Ken, I heard you're doing something in Colombia. You know, what? tell me what's going on down there. You have this family. And... Um, so that prompted an interest on the part of a, a drug company. It was um, Genentech Roche that came down here and said something that we knew for a long time, which is, is that we could predict who's going to get it. Mm-hmm. We can predict when they're going to get it. And the family was big enough to do statistics to see if a drug works. So that trial then started, and that trial will, will now end. We'll get data on that trial. It's been going on for close to six or seven years, when we'll get data in another year or less. Really? It's going to end, and we'll see if we can have an effect of a drug on people now that are pre-symptomatic. That was what we wanted to do. That had never been done before. And if you get that data and you get that information, and of course, then you are on the road to finding medicine, a drug to help. Absolutely. I'm that, not going to say a cure because it's a degenerative right. disease, but to help or maybe to, uh, you know, slow down a process, give someone another 20 years. back. This is amazing. It's really remarkable to me how a rather, you know, you know Medellin is a huge bustling city, but yeah. most of these people come from the campo. Yeah. And uh, it's always amazing to me how people from some rather remote villages are making major contributions to the international community's knowledge of this disease. Because you'd, you'd expect, I guess, I guess you, once you've learned or you have a, within the family, you know that there's an issue. And of course, they must have known for some time that, you know, oh, the X family always has sort of premature deaths or so on. Um, but you go out to the countryside, people are incredibly wise, but it tends to be, you know, you're sort of blending maybe Catholicism with shamanism a bit and so on and so forth. So it's, yeah, I mean, certainly in, in the case of my extended family, this is the way I can imagine. But they must be, this family must be totally just, they must be totally at one with what's going on to be able to participate is immense. It's it's huge. That's, uh, yeah, I'm really glad you made that point because (laughs) to me, uh, the reason I'm just so fascinated by what's happening here 
<clears throat> is that I'm unaware of any clinical trial that's ever been done like this, mm. in which there is not some um, CRO, that means a clinical research organization, yeah. that goes around and collects a few people in one town, another town, and just strings them all together and gets some data they then deliver. This is a whole community participating mm. collectively trying to solve a problem. Mm. And they, we meet, uh, we, they get together in, at uh, UDA in um, this, in, in Grupo Noresciencias there at Christmas time. We have a party with, you know, <laughs> before the pandemic, yeah. uh, 500 people come out. There's entertainers. Uh, and there's the opportunity to discuss it. Mm-hmm. Talk about, share experiences within the different families. Because remember, this family is so large, they don't even know each other. Yeah. They're, they can be fourth, fifth cousins, <laughs> and they all come together. <laughs> so well, let's, I mean, I can imagine this. And you've just been at Median. Did you have one of the Christmas parties? Unfortunately oh, not. This no. year we didn't. And well, sadly, yeah, I know. There's other things going yeah. on. What then are we going to, if I, we mentioned then, it, it's not just Antioquia. Other regions uh, in Colombia, are there are people displaying. But it's, are, they, are they descended from the same tree? No, you know, no, different yeah. altogether. It's that, it's that uh, model of the genetic code that's occurred in other places. Exactly. So, as the uh, clinical trial took off, mm. even though the family was large, we wanted to get as large a group as possible. Mm-hmm. So there were some advertisements that went around the country to say, if you have early onset dementia, it's in your family. Please call me. Mm-hmm. Call. Grupo Neurociencias in Medellin. Mm-hmm. Number of calls came in. There weren't many, very many more people found from that family, mm. but there were a lot of people who had early onset dementia. Mm. So we took those samples and we sequenced the DNA from all of them. And remarkably, we found, in addition to the one PISA mutation, another 12 mutations here in Colombia in the same gene, in different places in the same gene. Now, that is really astounding. That just still, you know, blows me off my chair because this is a very, these are rare mutations. Mm. And relative to the population of the whole planet, I mean, the Colombian population is not necessarily that huge. And to make it even more striking, the population in Colombia descended from a very small population, actually. We call that the effective population. Mm. So how could it be that in a relatively small population, we ended up with 13 rare mutations all leading to early onset dementia? How can that be? And we have some ideas. You're going to have to share some. (laughs) You're going to have to share some. I'm about to. Yeah. So this has to do with what is a rather... Um, I don't want to say completely unique, but quite special situation, demographic, historical genetics situation in the history of Colombia. Mm-hmm. Colombia, as you know so well, is a tri-continental admixture. Um, it includes the indigenous who had been here for, what, 20,000 years or more, with plenty of time to diversify genetically. There were African slaves that were brought in here and the African population is the most genetically diverse in the world. And then there was the Europeans that even though there were the Visigoths and all the people you talk about in Spain were probably the least diverse. But they all came together and in different proportions around the country, they intermarried, had Mm -hmm. children. So we call that an admixture. 
all the all these diverse genes from all over the world were getting mixed up. And then came um, the what we call in genetics the bottleneck, okay. the collapse of the population due to disease. Mm-hmm. Lots of diseases. I mean, our pandemic now is nothing compared to what happened then. Um, you know, the indigenous population was ninety percent mortality on all of these very, very serious infectious diseases, bacterial, viral, uh, parasitic diseases, and the population shrunk. Mm. Now, when that happens, in that in a, this phenomena called a bottleneck happens it's rather random you know who lives and who dies some survive and some don't so many that survive by chance mm. are carrying rare mutations and when they this happens in any bottleneck there's the, those that survive that we all have mutations so now there's a uh, those mutations have now shown up in a small population so what happened next the people in each of the little settlements that were admixed small populations began to have lots and lots of children. So the mutations, the different mutations in each of these settlements, the populations expanded. So if you look around the country, we get a, muta- a type of mutation in Montaria. There's another mutation in Nariño. There's, there are different mutations, Cali. There are different mutations in different parts of the country, even in a town right next to Medellin called um, called Copacabana, mm. there um, uh, uh, there is a different mutation than the Paisa mutation. It's a mutation that actually originated in Africa. And this is a really, I mean, it's such so visual. The bottleneck, I can see it. You know, the bottleneck. If, if you, as you say, the the chance of living or dying, and then who comes out, and then my my image, my head is this flow chart of family trees that are coming out. So therefore, you've taken one small problem and magnified it exactly out through genetics. Now, the the Pisces, the people from Antioquia. Uh, so I end up claiming, uh, I think wrongly, that the, you know they say, "Oh, we get these things because we are the the most pure," but that's not the case. Then it's this blending of bizarre, different genetic defects from all over the world, as you've just mentioned, the African genes, indigenous genes, European genes, that then comes out and shows that. Well, as we would say in Colombia, it's a sancocho, you know, it's the mix of all the different, different things. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. And there should be a different genetic variant in Copacabana, which is just there. That's right. So it's not, and it's not related to the Paisan one. An entirely independent lineage that came from, uh, we know the history there, a group of, us, of slaves that escaped and they, actually, the area right next to Copacabana called Hiradota, mm-hmm. and uh, they escaped, and that lineage then gave rise to another independent presenilin mutation and early onset dementia. That's right, because in that area there are these sort of um, what are they called the palenques, palenques of of escaped or freed slaves. That's exactly yeah. the, probably the group where this originated. Wow. This is just fascinating. Yes, the one, the mutation in Monteria comes from the indigenous population. Really? So they yes. were already carrying, there was already, you know, the defect, or defect, no, the mutation. the mutation 
it within an indigenous population. It's not as if it was brought, or, I mean, some were brought from Africa, some were brought from uh, Europe, but it also existed. It's genetics. It has no frontiers. That's exactly right, okay. yes. Because people would love to use this as a way of saying, oh, you know, let's not get into that. But you can tell. Well, we can use it to show that uh, there is no such thing as racial purity. Yeah, there we go. And, and so to, 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 to batter away at the people that will come at it from another. It's just really, I mean, I'm kind of speechless on this. And, and you spent so long studying it. it you know, would you say it's been a life's work, this, this, this study? Yeah. Because it's really been quite, uh, quite profound. Well, uh, thank you for saying that. <laughs> I, um, at this, um, it, it has been a life's work. There's no doubt about that. I have uh, devoted most of my career to the problem of dementia, Alzheimer's, and the Columbia part of it has been major, major part of it. Mm. Um, I do have a lab back in, <laughs> in uh, Santa Barbara, the University of California, where um, we sort of do some of the more uh, basic neurobiology behind that underlies this. Um, we make stem cells there from some of the, oh, really? uh, from some patients that have mutations like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we do a lot of the more basic cell biology, molecular biology in my lab back in the states. Wow, uh, the stem cell thing has been a, a has been an issue of much debate in the US uh, certainly under George W. Bush it right. was always but it, it, have these these under Barack Obama he, did he lift the restrictions on stem cell research? A, a lot's been lifted but there was um, a major discovery that sidestepped the whole problem it was yeah. there was a, a Nobel Prize given for learning how to make stem cells from your skin cells. Ah, so you're not. So you don't have to take any, nothing to do with an embryo. Yeah. And now you can, so we can take uh, cells from one of these families, mm. this little skin biopsy, and turn them into stem cells and study them in the lab. So this is, this, I guess you say, you sidestepped entirely the, 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 problem. the argument about the, the embryo, like invasive into an exactly. embryo. Exactly. That's very interesting. I, um, I've got, so I'll get in trouble if I don't ask. The other question, my wife, <laughs> has made me note down. When we look at early onset Alzheimer's, dementia, and how it affects the brain of a young person, what's the, is it going at the same speed equivalent to you know, the, the, the regular Alzheimer's in a mature person? Is it the same speed of, of uh, deterioration? More or less the same. Uh, the, it's a, probably a little bit faster, but... The once a person is diagnosed with Alzheimer's, on an average, and remember averages are very deceptive because they can swing widely, mm. but on the average a person lives about 10 years. Mm-hmm. In this family, once diagnosed, the people live about 10 years. Mm. Now, it really, because an average is made up of a whole range of numbers, then that there's a lot, perhaps there's more variation in the sporadic cases. Mm. Uh, than in these families. But this Alzheimer's with the mutation, this is textbook Alzheimer's mm. in every way, except for the early age of onset. Mm. Wow. And, and one thing I remember from the conversation that we had with, I had with Jenny Aaron Smith all that time ago was how 
you know, all of the, and so many of the young from these families, let's say this big tree, have moved to the city, you know, to do university and so on. So it's no longer something that you say, oh, it's that town, it's something rural. It's now an urban issue as well. I mean, it's, it's, you know, is Medellin set up for this to be able to, yeah. to handle something of this nature? Well, increasingly, yes. Okay. Um, about, of this large number of people in the family, about half of them live in the city, in okay. Medellin. Uh, many of them live in some of the rather poor barrios around the city. Um, and some actually, there's um, some members of the family that have been more successful and have actually gotten a certain level of economic achievement. Hmm. Um, the other half are still in the Campo and many of the towns, Yarumal, you mentioned it, Angostura, there are many towns that's where these families still live. Hmm. Um, the services are improving. Okay. And I think there is better services now for these families. There's a, still a lot to do. But it's a little better. Okay, I have to I have to move off topic somewhat. Sure. In the end, here we're winding this down, but I think I could probably pick your brains for hours. But um, we are living in this pandemic. It, it, you know, uh, people erroneously believe that to be double vaccinated or, or you know have had the booster shot creates immunity. It doesn't, as we know. Um, but I'm I'm curious. There must be studies ongoing. Of course, they're short term because we've only been in this for you know more or less two years, more or less. Uh, but of the neurological, uh, you know, what what is what are are there any neurological um, uh, outcomes from this right now? Is is COVID nineteen shown to create neurological issues? Uh, Yes, uh, and I say it a little bit reluctantly. Yeah, I can uh, understand that. Yeah, because <laughs> um, it's so soon. Right, but um, we do know that it can attack the nervous system because many people, usually it's young people that get it, their first symptom is loss of taste or smell. Mm -hmm. That's because it has actually gone to those centers in the brain. So the virus or something related to the virus, maybe something inflammatory, has affected the brain even at the very beginning stages. There is a condition that's called long COVID. Yes. And in these people, they continue to have symptoms lingering and lingering for months. And among them, um, one of those symptoms is what people call brain fog. Mm -hmm. They just, they can't think like they used to. So I think there are these neurological aspects, whether there will be really long-term sequelae I don't, we can't say yet. Well, I mean, talking from my own personal experience in early last year, I had it. And for about six months, I wasn't totally lucid. And I don't know if that's long COVID or not. Maybe in the grand scale of things yeah. it is right now. But I knew I was slower to react, slower to have, uh, answer questions. Although, ironically, it made me really, really focus on my doctoral thesis. So I may have done it better. <laughs> I may have done it better because I was so very critical of everything. Were you vaccinated at the time? No, no, not until uh, uh, we didn't. I didn't get my first one until October last I year. See. So, you know, with all due respect to every uh, achievement made in the vaccination uh, in a policy in Colombia, it was slow. Right. It, it was slow, and I had it. Uh, I had the the virus in March before anyone was really. It was sort of talking about it, but I got it at a big tourism fair because I was up there, you know, marketing my properties and, and tourism and so on in Montpos. 
and there were 40,000 people there yeah. from all over the world. I mean, it was the op- and lots of people I know said, oh, we felt awful that, well, that week. I don't stay in bed when I'm sick. I don't yeah. like it. I don't, yeah. but I couldn't move for three days. That was as bad as it got. Yeah. That was as bad. So, you know, I got off very lightly right. uh, to friends of mine who've been intubated and others and so on. But very lightly indeed. But I know that for six months I wasn't totally uh, coherent. I mean, it was, as you say, the brain fog. But uh, fascinating. And I know why you're, you're reluctant. You are a scientist and it's got to be. But I appreciate <laughs> the comment. Now, Last thing, because now it's, it's, we have to we have to end up. You're getting these statistics and this data from all of these years, six years, seven years of, of investigations. I've gone back to um, dementia. Will there be a book then, or, or papers coming out once this is done that we can read? Because I'm interested. You yes. Know, is well, there have already been a set of papers yeah. that have already, that have been scientific papers mostly. Um, there is. Um, a uh, paper that I wrote a long time ago, which I sent you, called The Fortune Teller. I like that very much. Which um, is describes some of my own personal experience here. Mm-hmm. And um, there are continue to be, there's continually a stream of papers related to our observations on genetics, the clinical trial. Mm-hmm. So there are papers and there will be papers. Uh, you asked about a book, and you already mentioned uh, Jenny Aaron Smith. Um, she's a marvelous writer, and I've just uh, never met anyone quite like her who has... <laughs> just completely immersed herself here to devote herself to this whole family mm. and the whole story that we're telling right now. Yeah, well, that's the book. I mean, I, the, first and foremost, as, as she's a friend, it will be the book that I read first. Uh, but it, it, this is a topic of, it's just so very interesting. I never, you know, I don't know a lot about neuroscience and, yeah. and so on, but this is fascinating because there's the, the social elements, which I know that she'll bring into the book. Yes. And then that, that you know, as you said, the fortune teller, that article that you sent me, although dated 99, it's, it's an incredibly readable article. It's very, you know, and it brings in the folklore a bit to it as well, which makes it more accessible to the layman like myself in this situation. It's, you know, there's a language that I think the neuroscientists would use between them and then a language that you need to be able to explain to me. <laughs> it's the truth. It's the job of scientists, I think. They don't always do it well to communicate what they're doing to the public. I think it's important. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for this. It is, it's really been, I know, that my listeners are going to be totally enthralled by this and I did have people uh, Colombian academics studying overseas saying oh yeah this guy so that was you this guy they, they indicated that you were the person uh, and so I'm honored to have you on the show and it has been a real pleasure Thank you so much. I enjoyed it too. Yeah, thank you. And well, hopefully somewhere down the line, our, our paths will cross again. You are, as you said, off, off mic, an honorary paisa now, so I'm sure you'll be back. Uh, I'm either here in Bogota or in Mompos, one of the two. Uh, but this is, has been a, real, a really special episode and a great one with which to finish this year's series, episode 406 and that's us we'll be taking a break for a few weeks you know we do produce every single week we'll be taking a break for a few weeks and back in early january with new episodes of the columbia calling podcast let me take this moment to say thank you so much to professor kenneth kusick uh 
professor of neuroscience at the UC Santa Barbara in California. Previously, you were at Harvard Medical School, so you're bringing with him, bringing with him a, you know, a vast reservoir of knowledge on this subject. So thank you all, everyone. Professor Kozik, everyone for listening. Stay safe. Have a Merry Christmas if you celebrate and whatever else. We'll see you next year in 2022. Thank you and goodbye.